Hey Stapleton Church, this is Matt Wolf, uh, lead pastor here at Stapleton Church, and I'm so glad you joined us today. You are in for a treat. We have a special guest preacher who is with us, and though he wasn't with you in person, he's here in our facility, and we're excited about that, and we're going to have to probably ask him to come back in the fall, because I think you're going to love this special message he gives. He's Reza Zadeh, and I met Reza years ago when I was in college at Colorado State University. He was actually Melissa's college pastor when she was in college and where we met at Colorado State in Fort Collins. And Reza is an incredible guy. He, he's now the, working with Athletes in Action, and he is the chaplain for the Denver Broncos. And he is going to deliver a message that is to help us overcome our fears. And I think that's so important in a time like this. So would you please pray with me as we pray for Reza in this message? Lord God, I'm so grateful that Reza can be with us to deliver just a powerful message from your word. I pray that this message that he delivers would speak to our hearts, that it would help us grow and become more obedient to you. And really, Lord God, would it help us overcome fear, especially in this fearful time? Please help us to learn and focus and grow today as we worship together. Amen. Stapleton Church, uh, thank you so much for letting me come here. I'm so thankful for Pastor Matt giving me an opportunity to come and to share from the Word of God uh, this weekend. Um, what unprecedented times that we're in. It seems like every time we open up our news feeds that we're being bombarded with new instructions or new information. And, and obviously there's never been a time in history like right now. And I'm so thankful to be here in a time where we get to have technology like we have, where we're not bound to coming to a church, coming to a place, and coming to a building, because the church of Jesus is not a building, but the church of Jesus is God's people getting, getting together and fulfilling God's mission in this world. And so I'm so thankful to be here, uh, thankful to be invited and to come and to share a little bit of what God says through his word and uh, think it'd be good for us to introduce ourselves to each other. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, as Pastor Matt said, my name is Reza Zadeh. Um, however, that's not the name my parents gave me. Uh, I was born in Iran. And so the name my parents gave me is Ali Reza Sarahiani Zadeh which I know is a mouthful, and uh, typically uh, when I fly at the airport, um, TSA looks at me funny because of that name, but um, I can tell you all about being detained in airports and what that's like. But I was born in Iran. We moved to the United States when I was young and uh, ended up living in Southern California, living in Orange County, grew up in Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, Mission Viejo area in, in South Orange County, and uh, that's kind of where I grew up, and that's where my childhood was and my teenage years were. And then I found myself quickly after high school, I went to a junior college for a few years and ended up playing football. And then I found myself at Colorado State University and I got to play football for the Rams. And uh, I oftentimes say back in the late 90s when we used to be really good, that's when I got to be there. But it's actually at CSU where the Lord really intersected my life. You see, I didn't grow up knowing the Lord at all. Um, actually, I grew up Muslim. And I grew up in a Muslim household, a very traditional Middle Eastern family. Uh, my mom and dad, they're, they're from Iran, so I'm full-blooded Iranian. So when we came to the United States, I was trying to learn what does it mean to be a teenager? What does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to grow up in this American culture, but yet have this Persian background and this Persian culture that I, that I grew up in? 
And uh, when I found myself at Colorado State University, I really didn't know a whole lot about what college life was going to be. I mean, I'd expected some things, what I saw on TV and talked to my friends. And so when I lived in the dorms at CSU, I kind of engaged in what everybody else was doing. And I was involved in the partying and that scene and the nightlife and all those things that I look back and almost embarrasses me that that's what my life was all about. But it was actually that summer, the summer of 1997, where the Lord really showed himself real to me. Um, when I was living in an apartment complex with some friends right down the road from Colorado State University, it's this apartment complex called Rams Village, and it's right down the road uh, from CSU. And so my roommates and I, we moved into Rams Village, and we thought this will be the greatest summer of our life. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to wake up in the morning. We're going to go to our workouts for football, and we're going to go to summer school. And then after that, all we're going to do is we're going to hang out. We're going to party. We're going to own this apartment complex because there was nobody else. There was no one else in that apartment complex, so we thought this will be the best summer of our life. And so we found ourselves living in that apartment complex, having a great time, and then one day, really, the summer changed. Because we're in our apartment complex, we're a bunch of college guys living in this apartment complex, going to workouts, going to school, going to the swimming pool every single day, pretty much have the whole space to ourselves. And then these minivans start coming into the parking lot, and we thought to ourselves, what's up with the minivans? Like, there's not typically minivans like this in, on a college campus. I mean, there could be VW buses or beat-up minivans, but these were like Honda Odysseys or Toyota Siennas. And if you know anything about minivan game, you know that the Honda Odyssey and the Toyota Sienna are like the Mercedes-Benz of minivans. And so these minivans start pulling into the parking lot, and we're thinking to ourselves, what in the world? And then something horrific happened, like kids started getting out of the minivans. And then even worse than that, not only did kids get out of the minivan, like the adults were pulling out luggage. And it was like they were moving in. They were invading our apartment complex. And I remember we picked one of our roommates and we said, hey, go down there and figure out, like, what are these people doing here? And why are they unpacking? And why are there kids here? And so one of my roommates goes down and he talks to them. He pretended like he had to get something out of his car. And I'll never forget this. He walks back upstairs and he slams the door and he goes, well, the Christians are in town. And we thought to ourselves, what? Like, what do you mean the Christians are in town? Like, what are Christians doing in Rams Village? Like, don't they know this is like our, this is our place. Like, this is supposed to be our, this is our apartment complex. Why are the Christians here? Well, it turns out every other year there is this organization, this worldwide missions organization called Campus Crusade for Christ that's now called Crew. And every other year, they have a national staff conference of all 10,000 of their missionaries that descend upon Colorado State University to host their national conference. And so every other year, all these missionaries come to, to Colorado State University to host their conference. And there's almost, a, you know, three or four weeks of, of teachings and, and, and uh, conferences and just uh, seminars and training and connection and all this stuff. So our apartment complex was overrun by Christians. And I remember thinking to myself, this will be the worst summer of our life now. Like, we're going to be stuck here. They're going to make us, like, read the Bible and sit in the dark and light candles. And we're going to have to learn how to sing Kumbaya. And we're like, this is going to be the worst summer of our life. But what I thought was going to be the worst summer of my life actually turned out to be an amazing summer. Because here's how God works. That not only did these people that we got to hang out with, not only did they serve with Campus Crusade and serve college students, there's this tiny little slice of Campus Crusade called Athletes in Action, who specifically works on ministering to college, Olympic, and professional athletes. 
And so we live in this apartment complex, and guess what? We were surrounded by the entire Athletes in Action staff from all over the country. And so here we are, living in this apartment complex, college athletes, surrounded by people that work with college, Olympic, and, and professional athletes for an entire summer. And we would barbecue together, and we kind of quickly found ourselves engaging with them, and we'd hang out, and we'd play games, and we'd get to know them. And, and it kind of turned into this thing where I thought, man, these Christians are not what I thought Christians were. Now, remember, I was Muslim. I had my thoughts of who Jesus was, and I had my thoughts of who Christians were and how Christians were. But my friends that I got to know that summer in 1997 flipped all of that around. And they truly taught me what it meant to live missionally. Like, here's the deal. They would even allow me to, like, take their kids to the swimming pool. Like, they didn't trust their kids to me. Their eight- and nine-year-old kids, they would say, hey, would you take our kids to the pool and just watch them while you're over there? And I'm thinking to myself, I, I, at this time in my life, I shouldn't be trusted with a college freshman at the swimming pool because I was so irresponsible in my life. But yet, we kind of developed this friendship over eight weeks. They were there for eight weeks of the summer, all of June and most of July. And the night before the conference was over, the family we got closest to, they invited us over for dinner, and they said, we would love to tell you why we do what we do. Now, remember, this is after eight weeks of relationship. And at this point, we were like, yeah, because I don't get this. Like, I don't understand you people. I didn't want to like you, but I really like you. And tell me a little bit more about why you do what you do. And so they proceeded to sit us down, and they fed us spaghetti and meatballs. And if you ever want to reach college students, just feed them. That's, that's a great first step. And they feed us spaghetti and meatballs, and they sat us down on, this, on our couch, and they handed us this tiny little yellow booklet that people from missionaries from crew have used all over the world called the Four Spiritual Laws. And they walked us through these four principles of faith. They walked us that God loves you and has a plan for your life. That secondly, man is sinful and separated from God because of our actions. Third, that Jesus himself and his sacrifice is the only provision for man's sin. And that's how we come in a relationship with God. And fourth, we can be in relationship with God for all of eternity if we put our faith in Jesus. Now, i got to tell you, this came on a collision course with my worldview growing up in a Muslim and a Middle Eastern household. But yet the way they explained it and the way that Jesus was exposed to me, it made me rethink the way that I viewed Jesus and the way that I, reviewed, that I viewed God as well. And so that night I went back to my room. We said our goodbyes and our hugs. And I'm getting emotional. Like I started crying. Here I am, I'm 18 years old, hugging this, you know, 38-year-old man and his wife and his kids. And we're just crying because I love, like, I developed a bond with them like I'd never really experienced with anybody else. And I went back, I sat on my bed, and I said, I said very clearly, I sat on my bed, I said, God, if what they said about Jesus is true, because I'd, I'd understood some things about Jesus growing up Muslim. I had known some of the teachings. I'd known about the miracles. I'd known about the virgin birth. And I believed in those things, but it was the Son of God piece, and it was the sacrifice for our sins that I really couldn't get around. But the reality is those were some pretty big hurdles that I had to cross. And I sat on my bed, and I said, God, if what they said is real about Jesus, I need Jesus in my life. And that started a journey for me. And so all through college, I was discipled, and I worked through and had people pour into my life. And after college, I was a graduate assistant coach for a couple of years at CSU with the football team, and then quickly found myself serving in ministry. And I served as a local church pastor for 12 years, and, and a season of that was doing college and young adult ministry at a church in Fort Collins. And then my wife and I had an opportunity to plant a venue, plant a church in Windsor, Colorado. And then in about 2014, the Lord really moved on our hearts, and we realized that our season of serving in the local church was coming to an end. And it was time to step out on faith. We didn't know exactly what that meant, but very quickly 
we found ourselves on staff with Athletes in Action. So for me, it was kind of coming back home. And so I served with this worldwide missions organization crew that impacted me about 23 years ago. I served with this organization with Athletes in Action, get to serve college athletes up and down the front range at a few different schools, and then serve with the Denver Broncos as our, as our team chaplain. I do that with my wife. She's a co-chaplain with me, with the wives and girlfriends of the players. And so here we are. And so that's my story. And so here's what I want to do today. Beyond telling you about my story, I wanted to drive us into the scriptures. Because what we're facing, like I said before, what we're facing in this day and age is unprecedented. We've never experienced what we've been experiencing, but yet the opportunity for us to learn and to grow and to connect is greater than it's ever been before. And so we're going to take a look at a, at a passage of scripture. It's a story of Jesus interacting with his disciples. It's a very familiar story. If you, if you grew up in church, you've heard this story. If you, if you knew someone that grew up in church, you've heard this story. If you've ever driven by a church, you've probably heard this story. I grew up Muslim and I heard this story. And we're basically going to dive into Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 51. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you, would you turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 51, because we're going to take a look at this, and we're going to look at the exact same story in another account, in another gospel. Would you follow along with me in Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 45? So some context up to this point. Jesus and his disciples had just fed the 5,000. Jesus did the miracles, but the disciples were a part of it. And so the disciples just saw this amazing miracle happen. So they're on this almost spiritual high. They're coming off of a great season. There's good things happening. And you, could, you might almost say that, that the economy is good. Everyone's talking about good things. There's a lot of positivity around. And there's a lot of good things that are happening within the ministry of the disciples in Jesus. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So the crowd is still gathered, and I'm going to see him huddling his disciples together say, hey, why don't you guys go in a boat? I'll dismiss the crowd. You guys go in and go into a boat. Why don't you guys just head on over across the lake, and I'll dismiss the crowd here. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. He just gets done doing this incredible miracle. People are amazed. People are bewildered. And the first thing Jesus does is he goes up to a mountainside to pray. He had to go spend time with his father. And he goes up to the specific mountainside. And in verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And he was alone on land. So he's up on the mountaintop praying. His disciples are in the middle of the lake. Look what it says in verse 48. He saw. The disciples straining. If you, if you underline or if you circle, I encourage you to circle. He saw. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out. If you underline in your Bible, I encourage you to underline. They cried out. Because, all they, because they all saw him and were terrified. And isn't it true that sometimes God seems scary from far away? Immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And in verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. And so they just saw Jesus walking on the water, 
in the midst of a storm, in the midst of the wind, and they're still thinking about, wait a minute, what about the fish and the loaves? But because they were focused on what had already happened and what would happen, what had happened previously, they almost missed the miracle of Jesus walking on water in front of them. There's a couple of principles that I want to pull out of this, and I want us to take a look at this very clearly. In verse, we understand in verse 45, it's Jesus that says, hey, I want you to go out onto the lake. Go ahead and go ahead of me. Head on over to Bethsaida. I'll catch up with you all there. I've got some things i got to do. i got to spend time with my father. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And when you go to the Holy Land, they take you to some of these areas where, they, where theologians think and, and are pretty certain where Jesus performed some of these miracles. And so right up, right by the area where theologians believe and historians believe that Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, there is a mountainside. And so when you go up on that mountainside, you get a clear picture of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is up there. I just have this picture in my mind that Jesus is out there. Jesus is sitting on the mountainside watching his disciples. And what does it say that his disciples are going through? It says in verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. In verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because why? The wind was against them. And friends, this is huge for us. We've got to understand this because this is pretty interesting. So Jesus sends the disciples into the water. He goes up to pray. And I believe that he had a perfect picture of the water, his disciples, and Jesus knew that the wind was going to be against them. And so we've got to think to ourselves, why would Jesus lead his disciples on a journey when the wind was against them? Because you and I have this perspective. We have a perspective that if Jesus calls us to do something, then the wind is going to be with us, not against us. But Jesus very specifically sent his disciples in a place where he got to watch them. And friends, that's also significant. That Jesus was watching his disciples in the middle of the storm. Now, we all understand and we see there is a storm going on all around us, whether it's economically whether it's physically with the coronavirus itself, whether it's relationally and we feel isolated, maybe it's financially, that there is a storm happening all around us. But just like the disciples experienced, Jesus had his eyes on them in the midst of the storm. And Jesus knows the storm and he sees the storms that we face. You know, a lot of times we might be looking for Jesus in our lives, but too many times Jesus becomes blurry because of the wind and the waves and we just can't see him clearly. And unfortunately, it's a reality of living in a broken world and the wind and the waves of society. It almost prevents people from seeing Jesus clearly. And unfortunately, many people don't see him. And so they walk away from Jesus because their eyes are so fixated on the wind and the waves. But Jesus knows exactly every tear that falls on the pillows at night. Jesus knows that the emotions that we feel that we hide from everybody else and the inner storm that we experience, because we don't share that with anybody. Jesus knows every single one of those. And make no mistake, his eyes are on us in the midst of the storm. But why do you and I think that when Jesus calls us somewhere, that the wind is always going to be with us? Friends, right now, the wind is not with us. The wind is against us. The winds of culture, the winds of the news, the winds of reality, the winds of being of, of having to shelter in place and having to stay together and stay in our homes. For some people, that means being isolated. 
For some college, high school, elementary school students, that means being in a place and having to do school on their own without access to Internet. I've got college students that I'm in relationship with. They don't have a laptop. They don't know where they're going to go. They can't go to the library to use the computer because the libraries are closed. And so they're forced to do all of their work, their schoolwork, on their phones. The wind is against us in so many different ways. But doesn't God love us? Why does God allow the wind to be against us? You see, I believe that if the wind was always with us, that you and I would have a temptation that Jesus wants to prevent us from falling into. That Jesus doesn't want us to think that it's our effort or our straining or our choices that got us from point A to point B. That sometimes we have to have the wind against us so we can get into a place mentally and have a posture in front of Jesus to make this statement. That Jesus, if it wasn't for you, there's no way I would have made it to the other side. That Jesus had to show up in the middle of the storm because they were straining against the wind and Jesus had to show them what it looks like for him to climb into the boat and the wind to stop. Because when Jesus climbed into the boat, that's when the wind stopped. And then they were able to get to the other side. The wind is against you, so you will know it is the Lord that gets you from point A to point B. If the wind was always with us, you and I would have the temptation to think that it's our effort and our strategy and our wisdom that is able to get us from one place to another. And God loves us way too much to allow us to be centered and to be fueled by insufficient fuel. That God knows that if we rely on ourselves and our intellect and our skill set, that we're going to be severely disappointed. That sometimes God leads us into a, into a lake, leads us into a journey where he knows that the wind is against us. I don't believe coronavirus took Jesus off guard. I don't think God is sitting on the throne thinking to himself, wait a minute, how did this happen? That he knew from the foundation of before the very beginning of the foundation of this world, he knew that this was going to rock us and this was going to come and this was going to really turn our lives upside down. Back in the scriptures in verse 50, it says, because they all saw him, they were terrified. And when they were terrified, they cried out, what does that next word say? Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said these words, take courage, it is I. I wonder in what ways Jesus is immediately trying to speak to us, simply saying, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Things around us are swirling. Jesus whispers. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. You see, I believe the disciples, when they first saw Jesus, they were terrified it was a ghost. And the moment they stopped being terrified is a the moment they recognized him. That they had been in relationship with him, so they knew his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice when he calls out to them. That they knew the voice, they recognized him immediately, and the storm in their heart started to subside. You know what's fascinating about this, about the story in this account? Is this story in this account, it's found in three of the four Gospels. The first four books of the New Testament are, are typically called the Gospels. And they're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, typically in most Bibles, they're written in red, which means those are the words of Jesus. 
And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they kind of walk us through the story of Jesus and the things that they witnessed him experience. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk specifically about the story. John leaves it out because John kind of takes a different route with his gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this specific account on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. But Mark leaves out something that Luke and Matthew don't leave out. And I think it's pretty profound for us to take a look and see what was, what was left out and why it was left out. You see, Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus. Well, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus directly from Jesus. Mark was a companion of Peter. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. And so Mark's gospel is almost an account of everything that Peter had, t- had told Mark to write down about the ministry of Jesus because people were wanting to know and read and understand a little bit about this Jesus. And it could be because Peter was a fisherman. Maybe he was uneducated. Maybe he was illiterate. Maybe he couldn't write. And so he brought somebody like Mark around to say, Mark, would you write all these things down? Because people are desperate to know about this Jesus of Nazareth who was, who was crucified, who was resurrected, who ascended into heaven. And so Mark is the one that writes down everything Peter wants him to say. And it's pretty interesting that Mark would write down everything that Peter would say. Because there's something very significant that was left out that Matthew doesn't leave out. Would you join me in Matthew? Meet me in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse 22. And so again, the same account, we're going to read through it. A lot of it's going to sound familiar from what we just talked about. But you're going to see something that's a little bit different. And I want us to talk a little bit about it. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind, buffered by the waves because the wind was against it. So all of that sounds very familiar. We just read that in Mark's account. Verse, in verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. And as soon as they cried out in fear, what does it say Jesus did? But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. All of that is in the account of Mark. However, verse 28 is where things get a little different. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Now, if Mark was writing down everything that Peter told him to walk on, and Peter is the one that ends up walking on water towards Jesus, I don't know about you, but if I ever walk on water, that's going in my biography. Like that, I'm going to tell somebody, hey, make sure you tell people I walked on water. Like this is something that I, I want all of eternity to know. I walked on water. But for some reason, Mark leaves it out. And I wonder if it's because of what happened next that many of us have heard this story. In verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out. That's significant. He cried out, Lord, save me. And what's that next word in verse 31? Immediately. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. Immediately, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they thought it was a ghost. They were looking, they were kind of looking in their eyes, and they were terrified, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. 
When Peter starts falling into the water, he immediately he cries out, and Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? When we cry out, Jesus immediately responds. I don't think the problem is that Jesus doesn't respond. I think the issue is typically Jesus doesn't respond the way that we want him to respond. And in verse 32, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. You see, Peter did this miraculous thing where he walked on water. But I don't know so much. Maybe it wasn't that Peter physically walked on water, but I believe Jesus or Peter was walking on the word of God. Peter was walking on faith because when he, when he finally recognized that that was Jesus, he says, hey, if it's you, I'm not sure if it's you, Jesus. I'm not entirely sure. I've got a hunch. I've got a pretty strong hunch. Jesus, that's you out there on the water. If it's you, I know I can trust you. Would you call me out? To come to you? I'd like to do what you're doing. Jesus says, hey, come on out. Come on out in the waters. And so Peter stepped out into that water on the word of God. That Peter was walking on the word. That Peter was walking on faith. And what happens immediately? Typically when, when this sermon is preached or this passage is talked about, this is typically how it goes. That Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he took a look at the wind and the waves and he started to sink. And I love that reality. Because you and I will always be tempted to take our eyes off of Jesus and put our eyes on the storm that's around us. And I wonder if for a lot of us, that's what's happening to us right now. That we're finding ourselves in a place where we're so focused on the storm that we're missing the Lord right in front of us. And a lot of times I believe that maybe Peter thought, hey, you know what, Mark? I don't want people to know about this because I don't want people to think that I failed. That I'm a little bit embarrassed about my past. I don't want people to know this. Because actually in the same, same vein, in the same chapter as that Peter did this, he actually also says that, hey, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you are the Son of God, you're the one we've been waiting for. But yet in this moment, Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. And he starts to sink and he cries out. And I wonder, I've asked this question to many people, did Peter fail? I don't think Peter failed. I don't think that's the definition of failure. Because there was 11 other guys in the boat that never stepped out on the water or ever even asked Jesus if they could walk on water. I think it's the 11 that failed. Peter's the only one that was courageous enough to step onto the water and to walk towards Jesus. And the last thing I want us to really take a look at, when did the wind stop? This is key. When did the wind stop? In verse 32, it says, when they, Peter and Jesus, climbed into the boat, the wind died down. You see, there's two accounts of Jesus calming storms in the scripture. The first time it happened, Jesus went to the winds and the waves and he says, peace, wind, be still. This time, all Jesus had to do was step into the boat and the winds and the waves knew that it was time to stop. You know what this tells me? This tells me. That peace is not an emotion that we pursue, but it's a person that we worship. That peace is attainable when Jesus walks into our lives and we allow Jesus to step into our lives. And then and only then can we experience true peace. Now, I understand we've got a passage of scripture here when when Jesus walks into the boat, the winds die down and everything stops. 
But the reality is, when you and I invite Jesus into our lives, it's not that the winds and the waves around our lives are going to stop, although sometimes they do. But it's that peace is attainable for you and I. Because peace isn't an emotion that we pursue. It's a person. Peace is Jesus. The Prince of Peace. The Wonderful Counselor. The one who has come to take away the sins of the world. The one that came to give us hope. And to teach us truth. And to give us an understanding of what it means to live the kingdom way, not the world's way. And it is Jesus, as we invite him into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, that shows us what it means that Paul wrote to the Romans. That in all things, God is able to work good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God does not make coronavirus come and impact us. But for some reason, in his wisdom, he allows these things to happen in our world. That from the fall of humanity to today, there's disease, there's virus, there's brokenness, there's death. There's these things that God never intended for us to experience. But sin has infected us. It's infected our world through generation after generation after generation. And we're living in a world that was never intended for us to experience. But yet here we are. And yet Jesus and his majesty comes and he reaches down to us. When we cry out in fear, he immediately reaches out and he pulls us up. This is the gospel itself. First John chapter 4 verse 10. It's a beautiful passage. And I want to walk us through it. This is love. Not that we loved God. Not that we were straining. Not through our effort. Not through our intellect. Not through anything that we do. Not that we love God. Not that we did it right from the very beginning. But that he took the first step. That he initiated, that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Basically, he took the place of us when that death warrant is issued because of our sin. You see, there's a show that my family and I, that we started watching a few years ago, and we absolutely love this show. And many of you have seen it. It's called The Voice. And if you haven't seen it, it's a, it's a fascinating show about singers trying to make it. And so what happens is you've got some superstar singers, people that have made it in the music industry, and they're sitting in the chair, and their back is to the stage, and somebody walks up onto the stage, and they start singing. And if the people, if the judges, if they feel like that person who's singing has potential, or you think that person is somebody that is worthy of them coming alongside and being an apprentice of that person, then they hit a button, they turn around, they say, I choose you. But here's the beautiful story of the gospel. The beautiful story of the gospel is Jesus might be sitting with his back towards us in that judge's chair. And as soon as we step on stage, before we ever sing a note, he hits that button and he says, I choose you. I don't care how you perform. I don't care how you sound. I choose you. I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. I will go to whatever depths it takes to be in relationship with you in the midst of a broken world that is riddled with disease, that is riddled with wind that is riddled with waves. John 15, Jesus continues, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Live within my love. When you obey me, you are living in my love just as I obey my Father and live in his love. Friends, you and I have been invited on this incredible journey with Jesus. And I do believe for some of us, this is a morning where we would invite him into our lives in the midst of a storm, in the midst of the waves that are crashing around us, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
We would keep our eyes fixated on him. And we would trust him. Even as the winds go around us. And as he steps into our lives, freely he steps in. As soon as we cry out, he steps in. We get to experience peace. Not because the waves stop. Not because the winds stop. Not because the economy is going to turn. Not because this disease is going to go away. But we get to experience peace because we get to spend time with the one who created us and knows us from the very beginning. In a few weeks, is going to be the most different and bizarre Easter than any of us have ever experienced. The Easter is going to be celebrated, not publicly, but it's going to be celebrated within our homes. I wonder if this is a season that God knew was going to happen. And he gives us the opportunity to share the stream, to send it out to our friends, that our friends that, that are in this area that we're in relationship with, that really might have nothing else to do on Easter Sunday because brunches won't be happening, but they'll be sitting at home. And I invite you to invite others into this incredible journey of Jesus. This incredible journey of getting into the boat and going across from point A to point B, knowing that the wind comes against them, but giving people the opportunity to experience that peace is not an emotion, but that peace is a person. May this be the most powerful Easter that the Holy Spirit has worked in our lifetimes. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much that as we examine the scriptures, and even as we take a look at some context of the disciples, we understand a little bit more of Peter and his heart and his story. And it's fun to even think about Peter. For many of us, we laugh when we think of some of the things that Peter does and says. But yet, Lord, the reality is we see ourselves so much in him. So, Lord, thank you that you chose regular and random people to be your disciples. For a lot of us sitting at home, watching this on TV, our computers, our tablets, our phones, we feel pretty ordinary and insignificant right now. Lord, would you remind us that our significance does not come from what happens outside, but our significance comes because you've called us by name. You know us. You formed us, and you call us. So, Lord, thank you for calling us. We want to obey Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen.